The CCUA episode 22 with Kenny Kane. Three marbles. During the waning years of the depression in a small southeastern Idaho community, I used to stop by Mr. Miller's roadside stand for farm fresh produce as the season made it available. Food and money were still extremely scarce and bartering was used extensively. One particular day, Mr. Miller was bagging some early potatoes for me. I noticed a small boy, delicate of bone and feature, ragged but clean, hungrily appraising a basket of freshly picked green peas. I paid for my potatoes, but was also drawn to the display of fresh green peas. I'm a pushover for cream peas and new potatoes. Pondering the ideas, I couldn't help overhearing the conversation between Mr. Miller and the ragged boy next to me. Hello, Barry. How are you today? Hello, Mr. Miller. Fine, thank you. Just admiring them peas. Sure look good. They are good, Barry. How's your ma? Fine. Getting stronger all the time. Good. Anything I can help you with? No, sir. Just admiring them peas. Would you like to take some home? No, sir. Got nothing to pay for them with. Well, what have you to trade me for? All I got is my prize marble here. Is that right? Let me see it. Here it is. She's a dandy. I can see that. Hmm. Only thing is, this one is blue, and I sort of go for red. Do you have a red one like this at home? Not exactly, but almost. Tell you what. Take the sack of peas home with you, and next trip this way, let me look at that red marble. Sure will. Thanks, Mr. Miller. Mrs. Miller, who had been standing nearby, came over to help me. With a, with a smile, she said, there are two other boys just like them in our community. All three are in very poor circumstances. Jim just loves to bargain with them for peas, apples, tomatoes, or whatever. When they come back with their red marbles, and they always do, he decides he doesn't like red after all, and he sends them home with a bag of produce for a green marble or orange one, perhaps. I left the stand smiling to myself, impressed with this man. A short time later, I moved to Colorado, but I never forgot the story of this man, the boys, and their bartering. Several years went by, each more rapid than the previous one. Just recently, I had an occasion to visit some old friends in the Idaho community, and while I was there, I learned that Mr. Miller had died. They were having his viewing that evening, and knowing my friends wanted to go, I agreed to accompany them. Upon our arrival at the mortuary, we fell into line to meet the relatives of the deceased and to offer whatever words of comfort we could. Ahead of us in line were three young men. One was in an army uniform, and the other two wore nice haircuts, dark suits, and white shirts. Very professional looking. They approached Mrs. Miller, standing, smiling, and composed by her husband's casket. Each of the young men hugged her, kissed her on the cheek, spoke briefly with her, and moved to the casket. Her misty light blue eyes followed them as, one by one, each young man stopped briefly and placed his own warm hand over the cold pale hand in the casket. Each left the mortuary, awkwardly wiping his eyes. Our turn came to meet Mrs. Miller. I told her who I was, and I mentioned the story she had told me about the marbles. Eyes glistening, she took my hand and led me to the casket. So the three young men who just left were the boys I told you about. They just told me how appreciative of the things Jim traded them. Excuse me, they just told him told me how they appreciated the things Jim traded them. Now at last, when Jim could not change his mind about the color or size, they came to pay their debt.
We've never had a great deal of wealth of this world, she confided. But now, Jim would consider himself the richest man in Idaho. With loving gentleness, she lifted the lifeless fingers of her deceased husband. Resting underneath were three magnificently shiny red marbles. This is the Sisu Way, a show about grit, gratitude, character, philosophy, fitness, leadership, and service, and what it means to choose strength. My name is Scott McGee. I'm a family man, friend, thinker, guardian, and a mindful warrior with an open mind on a path of gratitude and service who loves to connect with unconquerable souls. So that opening is a short story by W.E. Peterson from Ensign Magazine in October of 1975. And that was the first time I didn't ball reading it. And obviously, Kenny, you know, I love you. And I think this episode will play out in a certain way. But hopefully this episode will explain why I chose that particular story. And obviously, you're my muse for why I was attracted to that. Kind of hits, huh? Yeah. <clears throat> yep. This is going to be a weird transition, but I think it's going to be important. Before the show, I was talking to Kenny about bios and what those actually mean. And if we go to oakparkla.com, which is uh, Kenny's gym, he has a bio here. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to zip through it and paraphrase it. And then I'm going to give you my explanation of what his bio should be. So Kenny Kane is a lifelong performer and coach who is fueled by improving quality of life for people in principled ways. I could be done right there. So if you don't know Kenny, he bought CrossFit LA in 2014 with the vision to build a unified coaching team and the business to support it. The business rebranded in 2017 as Oak Park, a nod to Kenny's roots in Santa Rosa. Uh, as well as a symbolic transition to something evergreen. His dream has always been to create an environment where you can be a student and learn entirely new things from the people within it. As the Oak Park coaches and community continue to evolve, that dream becomes more of a reality. So Kenny has had an extraordinary diverse background. He grew up in a family fitness business with a mother in the Swimming Hall of Fame and a father who is an officiant at the Olympics. At 15, he earned his black belt, and began his coaching career as a martial arts instructor. He attended UC Davis where he played soccer, ran track, and competed in triathlons. And then he went on to teach physical education and drama in his hometown while training for the Olympic trials. A career-ending injury pushed him into the shift, pushed him into uh, shifting focus to focus on stand-up comedy and private training. And Kenny spent 14 years splitting time between training clients and touring the world. He performed stand-up and gave motivational talks while simultaneously transforming people as a coach. And he retired from performing in 2013 to do what he loves. And now he dedicates all his professional time to coaching and the business endeavors that support it. Now, I want to say as far as bios go, like, especially in the context of having just read that story, I think it's pretty good. It's hard to articulate in someone's bio the warmth of a person, how that person makes other people feel. Because this could be anybody, but your ability to make other people feel good and other, your ability to make people want to improve is hard to articulate in a bio. 
so I had that's just for the listeners. I had a little bit of hesitation even getting into it. Um, that's Kenny Kane, and and he's a good man. <laughs> <laughs> good night. Also, uh, a family man and father, and so a lot of stuff to juggle. And before we get into some of these other questions, uh, I also want to I just want to highlight something, uh, an admiration. And to couple it back with uh, the story and, and some parts of your bio and how it's going to echo through the rest of this podcast. But in a 2013 blog post, you, you wrote, when you are in service to something greater than yourself, your output can increase often significantly. So that was five years ago. It could have been 10 years ago, 20 years ago. It doesn't matter. But that's something that we're going to highlight here. Um, also, you guys don't know, Kenny and I, we've known each other 10 years? Yeah, right about 10. We passed, could have possibly slightly uh, crossed paths at UC Davis, yep. but I think you left just as I was going. I was in. gone, but I would come back for events periodically. For, for the Aggie Pack. Yep. Which is another ripple effect that is still, um, still there that Kenny started back, way back when. In the, in the ancient days. In the 70s, I think. <laughs> But really, our, our friendship grew in early years at, at Paradiso CrossFit. Oh. And, and for those that don't know, if you were a CrossFitter before 2010, especially in L.A., you knew everybody. Yeah. There was like a handful of people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, so, and I think those particular relationships that were formed then yeah. are everlasting. Yeah. I'm still, like, to this day, if I see someone, it's like, they're like, like my cousin. Yeah. Probably even closer. Uh, so we started training together and... We were similar and then different in size. <laughs> well, you were like the body weight guy, right? Yeah. Nice and fast. Yeah. And then I was like, didn't appear to be the, a body weight guy. Right. And so we find, kind of found like this mutual respect of, of body weight workouts. Mm -hmm. or I don't know if I got your attention doing, I don't know. Either way, there's a mutual respect there yeah. that yeah. has grown. Barbara was the workout that got my attention. Yep. And I think, I remember one point in time I did a workout and I, and I text you, get back in here. <laughs> <laughs> but so we fitness together, we grew a friendship. And, and so Kenny pushed me to grow in a lot of different ways and still continues to push me to grow in a lot of different ways. But one in particular that's echoing right now is Kenny was one of the original hosts of the Wadcast podcast. And if you don't know what the Wadcast podcast is, it's a, it's a, funny sense of humor tongue-in-cheek kind of look at crossfit and, and the overall fitness community and so he was one of the hosts and at the time in 2012 there wasn't very many crossfit there was like i think that and barbara shrug started in the same month yeah february of yeah. 2012 and so i started listening to it and i knew kenny i knew armin because like i said and eddie because if you crossfitted back then you knew everybody and so i came on as a guest i want to say like episode 14 I remember my first time, the question, it was, I was straight, like one word answers. I was like uncomfortable, but I got to be a guest on that show because <laughs> of Kenny. And then I came back a few times and then when Eddie or, or you or one of, you know, even Armin, if other people were gone, I started co-hosting, guest co-hosting. And then fast forward, you have um, moved on from the podcast and then I came on as a permanent host and then that. That was like five and a half years ago. Mm -hmm. 
And I remember talking on the phone to you like, Kenny, I can't be a guy. I can't be the guy on that thing. I remember saying, I can't be the guy. Yeah. And now I have my own podcast. Yeah. And so I can, I can proudly say that because of your influence on me and it got me to do, look where I'm at now. So thank you. And now you're a guest on me being a solo host. I never thought this would happen. It's a lovely show too. Well, thank you. Thank you. I think it's because of the intention and the heart yeah. and, and the respect behind it. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's, full, it's like a weird full circle for me. Also want to point out that you were supposed to be an early guest on this show, but our schedules have been, you know, we both have young kids and, and jobs and busy and LA traffic. And, you know, one of us sleeps during the daytime. So it makes the recording hard. But here we are, episode 22. Yeah. It doesn't matter, but you're here. Um, we and also I'm, have... I'm sincerely glad to be here, Scott. Well, thank you. Yeah, not that that needs stating, but I just, I really appreciate the space that you've cultivated for this, um, the space that you hold for other people uh, when interviewing them and the overall intent behind the show. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. And I, I mean it... I, and I think the listeners understand, but I really, really, like, really respect the guests, and I really respect the listeners. So I just want, because there's so much stuff out there. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of podcasts. There's music. There's all kinds of things competing for people's attention. And so that's like a, a currency that is, like, completely invaluable to me, right? Because what you pay attention to matters, it matters to that person. And so if someone's paying attention to this, I'm going to try and be the best I can and give them the best I can. Speaking of which, giving the best that you can, how do you do the most good? So... I think in many ways it's a very simple question, but then if you, you know, peel back any kind of layer to it, it gets complex immediately. Um, I've experienced the complexity of decision-making with purpose um, in very challenging ways in recent years. Uh, a very recent example, or an example from a couple years ago, um, and perhaps you're going to, guide the show to this point, but a very powerful moment for me was the, um, the birth of my son followed by the death of my mom within a 48-hour period. And then immediately that, and, and I can describe that if you'd like at, at some point, but in answering your question, I realized that there's no elegant answer assuming that you're choosing some degree of responsibility. So if my son's born in Sweden and I'm sitting with him and I get a call from my niece who's crying alongside my sisters, um, you know, in a, in a Skype call, and I can see that um, something horrible has happened, and then she points the screen to my mom who's dead on the floor um, from a stroke and a subsequent hit to the head, um, and she's laying on her back. 
and I'm, I'm, I'm seeing that through a video screen and laying or sitting up next to my two-day-old son. And immediately a decision has to be made. Do I stay with my boy? Like most parents would choose. Or do I go home and be with my grieving family on a situation you can't do anything about? Now, at that point, the question of good, doing the right thing, doing the good thing, gets very complicated. What I didn't know is the next couple of years were going to be a lot of decisions like that. They were forced against each other in seemingly antagonistic ways with sort of a, a relentlessness. And uh, I can't say... Scott, reflecting if necessarily the choices that I've made and continue to make are necessarily good. I've experienced a lot of other people's pain and choosing between very hard things. People that I'm responsible for. And with that comes the next line of thought, which would be, you don't know if you're doing good, but, you know, is the intent there? And what I've <laughs> learned, and there's a weird thing with the intent of something and the actual efficacy of your actions, and what I've experienced is incongruence. Like there are times where it's just so like, man, my best intentions, like I know in my soul, like I'm doing this sacrificially. And the sacrifice that I'm making, whether it be time, energy, money, physical presence, can sometimes be rejected by people that I love, by people that have looked up to me, that have looked to me to lead them. And I can see it in their face. I can hear it in their words. And some of the feedback that I've gotten the last couple of years has been really difficult to take, which is, you know, in this sort of rough time that I've had, um, you know, I haven't felt like my... Capabilities are matching the challenges. The challenges are outpacing my capabilities. So there's a couple of decisions to make in that. Like, am I going to allow the change to happen? I think on evaluation of these last couple of years, the thing that's shown up in my notes a lot is this, like, change is simply an accident of time. It's going to happen to all of us. But what's more compelling to me is growth with time, sustainably and thoughtfully. And choosing that path... I'm really starting to recognize is one of a fair amount of suffering because <laughs> um, what I've learned and always known, but I've, it's, it's really been, you know, 
pushed in my, not just face, but experience the last couple of years is that um, hard stuff, really, really hard stuff is going to come. And you can be steeled against it to some degree. And, you know, the things that have gotten me through the last couple of years are the very things that are making me ineffective in the new dimensions of my growth and leadership. So I have a number of ways to kind of point that out, but that's my general statement on, you know, how do I do the most good? Uh, Scott, I, I don't know. I'm just, you know, this is, this is obviously a podcast of a philosophical nature, but I can't help to express it. Dude, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm told historically that, hey, when you're in the room, when you're with the group, as a general commentary on my life, that I've made things better. And there's a lot of illustrations where that hasn't necessarily been the case. But, you know, on the balance sheet, I'm very rich there as far as the general feedback. But <laughs> do I really know that? I, 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 don't, I, I don't know. A couple of things. One, and this is something, first of all, I understand the nature of that question. I know you do. You do it daily. That's your profession. It is. Comma, well, you're a father and a husband. <laughs> yes. I was going to say, there is, as far as professionally, and uh, I don't want to put the conversation on, on a too much of a tangent, but they're like good, like pillars of good or pillars of strength. They have shadows. So like several good deeds have sacrifices. They hurt other people. A good deed might hurt somebody else. Take, for example, a simple, so say professionally in law enforcement, somebody uh, breaks into a home, say it's your wife, she locks herself in the bathroom, we get there, uh, surround the place, grab him, he gets arrested, right? Save the day. Take that person on an adult timeout. Seems like everything is good, right? But now let's just say that person has kids at home. And now we're creating more victims. Mm -hmm. So a good deed has shadows. So, I mean, that's, that's as far as the law enforcement, a simple example there. So all good deeds have shadows, I think. Also, especially if you're in a position where people are vying for your attention. Because mm -hmm. no matter where, wherever your attention goes, it's going to be away from something else. Mm -hmm. And if you're moving your attention to that some, something and you're trying to keep your attention in a bunch of other things, then you're not doing a good job of that one thing that you're trying to pay attention to because right. you're split. But what, what do you think, I'm going to circle back to a couple of things, but what do you think is your most valuable currency? So like saying, right, you come into yeah. a room, what is it? Like, what is it about you? My ability to connect. When I'm focused, like I'm a giant. See, so you, your ability to connect, right? Yeah. And you're giving understanding and validation to people mm -hmm. and then bumping them in a good, positive direction. The intent to hold the space. 
like my leadership now is is based on what I tell my coaches all the time is that like our capacity as as coaches really is dependent on our ability to hold paradox for the people that we lead and invite them to investigate those corners of their paradoxical nature dark sided traits light sided traits all of it the physical template the physical training is merely a way to kind of experience those things we have limitations and frustrations. If there's a willingness to do that, it's, it's a much more robust experience. If there's an unwillingness to explore that psycho-emotionally, then it's a, it's, it's a more minimized, fixed experience. And that, you know, that as a practical level um, matters because, you know, with the warrior traditions, and, uh, you know, obviously we're both great friends with Greg Amundsen, who you've had on, and you know, I'm, I'm very tuned into like the, the dedicated physical practice being a, a conduit for, you know, greater expression itself. Yep. And once I get through this, this first, um, really third of the show, as you can see here, I'm breaking you down, breaking it down, physical, mental, emotional. We'll just go through the, mm, almost like the five mountains and great. it keeps echoing a lot in a lot of, of your yeah. work, yep. whether it's intentional or not yep. is there. Yep. And for some reason, I'm, I have an ability to pick up patterns. So, so just like the the just like the story, right? So, part of your journey and is drive is to leave a legacy, right? Mm-hmm. So, when you think about that, is there a certain specific like group of people, or are you hyper focused like on your kids? Or when you say leave a legacy, what does that mean to you? Mm. Well, legacy has been a big consideration in the last couple of years. And I'll be honest, um, there's been a lot of our family legacy that's been wiped out in the last couple of years. Um, physically, literally and metaphorically. Um, so, you know, we, we haven't given too much context to what I was alluding to before, but you're, because you're friends, you kind of know. Um, Getting there. <laughs> um, I think you know with evaluating the concept of legacy it's very easy to go okay it's, it's, it's for my kid it's for the future family um, if I think about legacy it's about having um, you know some of the, the things that I've developed within like the, the the fitness space for example ways to like look at physical training. Um, I feel like I've made meaningful contributions there for other leaders to, you know, deploy concepts. Um, and I really do feel like that that's a, that's a big part of my future. Um, but very quickly my ego can get wrapped up into that. And so, you know, I get stuck in uh, like what could be very easily a false identity loop. Right, because I start to enact those behaviors, and then sort of people, the relationship that I have with people starts to become this like just on this like coaching thing, and then the extension of my identity is like the the systems and the organization that I create, or the the overall breadth of what the the language that I'm creating is. Now, if I only self-identify with that then my ego will get swept up into that's my meaning. And so out of a choice of consciousness, it's, it's, it's very important for me to distinguish, 
you know, what layers of legacy can mean. Is it a, is it a concept? Is it a business? Is it a family? And by magnitude, like the closer it gets to my seeds, the more significant it becomes. Right. But then there's a point where it's like ideas and then wrapping your ego around that is, is a more of a challenging thing because that's uncontrollable. But I don't know for sure if you can even measure your legacy. You can't. Right. It's not no. like, no, but you're asking what's your legacy and that it's, it's a ridiculous in so, in so many ways, it's a ridiculous question. It's like, it's not for me to tell. <laughs> so the, the, the leaving a legacy part. So let me, let me circle back. I, you have a, a, a tremendous booming accelerator and shadow, mm-hmm. right? And that in particular, your mom, who's mm-hmm. world famous, one of the, probably the best, most well-known swimming coaches of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, completely accomplished, uh, set you up on the right foot, gave you all the tools. Is there any like feeling of, I don't want to say competition, but a way of like repaying that debt? And is that part of why you work so hard? Oh, that's a, that's a really interesting question. I think, you know, I've done a lot of like therapy and a lot of self work the last couple of years. Um, you know, there's so much that, so much landscape that my mom offered me. <laughs> and, you know, as a kid, and I've described this on other podcasts before, but I'm running around and in my diapers and Mark Spitz is at dinner, the greatest Olympian of all time until Michael Phelps comes along. Um, my grandfather was the manager of the 68 Olympic team. Like there's like, there's just, I was around so much as an infant of this like extraordinariness and on one hand, and then on the other hand, like my mom was so focused on the work that she was doing, getting the business set and then eventually divorcing my dad that there was not a lot of attention paid to my sisters. So I'm the prince of the family. I got three older sisters. There's a 10 year gap and then there's me. So I'm just like this, I'm this golden child. So my sisters go through the late 60s and early 70s in San Francisco as the city's like on fire in the entire Bay Area and the, and the, the, the political, cultural, sexual, and social revolutions have an epicenter in the Bay Area. And my sisters are in school at that point. So schools are um, losing their accreditations to run and operate as an institution. They're getting kicked out of schools. Like it's, it's, a, it's a gnarly moment of Bay Area history. So my mom during this time says, okay, we're going to move up 50 miles north to a little bit more of a a quiet place. Okay, so we get to this more quiet place. Now, we move the whole family up there and we start this family business, family fitness thing. And uh, my sisters have the sophistication of, you know, like a 30-year-old Mick Jagger um, as far as things that they're exposed to. And, um, you know, now they have a lot of time because they're in a suburban uh, neighborhood and they've got a slow pl- pace and a lot of time to fill. So it's a great combination for interesting decisions to be made. 
So my mom sees this, my dad sees this, even though they divorce and the, the, the intent at that point, my grandparents come in and they, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a mobilization to insulate me from that. Kind of put me on a different trajectory. And so then as I grow up and reflect on all this, there's like guilt that I have, that I got things that my sisters didn't. There's, there's um, attention that I got from both my parents that, that none of my sisters got. Um, there is... You know, my mom, one of my favorite, has <laughs> got some amazing quotes, but one of them, I said, I told her in high school when we went to go see Dana Carvey that I wanted to be a stand-up comedian. And mind you, all through high school, I was like, you know, sophomore class president and student body president, all these like, I was captain of every athletic team that I was ever on. Like, I was always the leader guy. So she saw me, she saw only that side of me. And what she didn't see is the comedic side of me that made me appreciated by people because I could bring light and humor to a lot of situations. And so I really enjoyed the energy that humor and laughter and the complexity of what humor is. And I told her after seeing Dana Carvey, I want to be a stand-up comedian. She says, no, I think you want to be the president. And with 100% sincerity, that's what she thought. She thought that that was my path. Like, if I'm not president, so then there was a value system set up for me in my head, you know, 16, 17 years old, like, okay, anything short of the president, I am a failure. Like, <laughs> like anything short of that. And we had a lot of other moments. We had a lot of arguments about, like, you know, growth and life and experience and all these things. And so... You know that was a that was something that I never wanted to live into, um, and at the same time, there is also the it's the complexity of parenthood, the things we do right and the things that we do wrong. It's just like enormous on both sides, right? So on the other side, she's just teaching me day in day out what it means to have grit, to have work, to endure brutal loss to do things when everybody around you is saying no you can't i mean her life was exemplary in that way what did she do as a teenager she swam in open water races in the san francisco bay comma no women did that she was the only female in these races so she'd go in open water races and beat sometimes the entire field of men then for training, she'd swim out to Alcatraz routinely and have guns pointed at her when it was still a prison, and they'd say, we got to turn you back. Uh, so you got this teenager that just is extraordinary to begin with, that just does and wills. And she survived 7th and 8th grade. Um because of the invention of penicillin. She would have been dead without that. So she's homeschooled for a couple of years. Um, <laughs> Near-death experience, conscious, old enough to really recognize that what that could mean. Um, Olympic caliber athlete, you know, goes on to do amazing things in, in swimming and synchronized just in, in, in aquatic sports to begin with. Befriends all the 
key Olympians from not just swimming, but other sports as well. So that's the kind of tribe that we in one way grew up with. And then we had this massive dysfunction on the other side. So, you know, when I'm looking at this, this piece, this legacy conversation, you know, what her expectations may be of me and it, it, she would simultaneously accept me no matter how much I failed and would be blind to if I played a poor game of soccer, let's say in high school, like everybody on the team would be like, yeah, Kane, like better luck next weekend because that was crap. Uh, coach is like, dude, I need you to do better. My teammates like, dude, like or whatever. My mom's like, that was a great game. Like, like, no, mom, I fed the team the ball and then they scored and won. Like, yeah, but you know, so much effort. I'm like, I appreciate that you appreciate effort, but you know, it, it like the things that are meaningful to me right now, that's not lining up. Does she focus on besides effort, but the lesson? Sometimes she was very cold at other times though. For example, Yes, she would focus on the effort. Like if I had to use like playing poorly in a high school soccer game, and then let's let's fast forward to one of my favorite illustrations of her just being a ruthless coach, um, just in her nature. I was running a track meet at Cal State Stanislaus, which, you know, one of the redeemable, redeemable qualities of Stanislaus is that you can find parking. And it's in the heart of the Central Valley, routinely hundred and. 12 degrees, um, buried in Central Valley smog. Um, and running 1,500 meters there uh, is about as unpleasant as, of a physiological experience that you want to um, know. So I was in the hunt with the lead pack with 200 meters to go on this thing, completely ready to run what would have at the time been a PR. She's got her stopwatch out and she would time everything, get all my splits and, and uh, just as a default person with, grew up with a stopwatch in her, in her hand. So she's timing me and, and with 200 to go, I just, Scott, I didn't want to hurt. It was a day where I did not feel like hurting like a miler hurts. Like there's no, I don't know if there's greater pain than running at 800 or 1500 meters all out a 400 meter hurdler would would argue or 200 meter butterfly swimmer would 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 argue that rightfully but those are kind of the sweet spots of like man it really really hurts and i didn't want to really really hurt that day and i was fine i was actually fine but i just backed off and gladly took like a fifth place finish and like what matched my personal best but the lead pack finished three seconds ahead. All I needed to do is race. All I needed to do is let go. All I needed to do is compete and just embrace that moment with 200 meters to go. And I didn't. And she saw that. So I finished the race, not feeling well. I go over to a tree. And the rest of the Davis track team was nearby. I start puking. And she's got the stopwatch. <laughs> she, she, she shows me like what, what I ran. And she goes, look, the other guys were three seconds in front of you. You could have run with them. And this is what you ran. I puke again. And she pulls out like a napkin from her purse. She's like, wipe your mouth. And she's, and she's just drilling me. Why didn't you go? Why didn't you go with them? You didn't, you didn't, you didn't go with them. Look at this time. And like, like I'm bent over puking 
and I'm I'm 22 years old. I'm a grown man at that point. And she's shoving the 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 stopwatch in my face like you clearly did not effort son and that's not the man that i raised so it's a beautiful lesson <laughs> mm. just a beautiful lesson like yeah no ma you didn't raise me like that like and i did and it's not about she was just kind of using i was using time as a motivation but she was saying like look if you don't open yourself up to the experience the time won't come so effort in that experience and allow the time to come I'm very grateful for sidetracking my own thoughts here. Because one of the questions I was going to ask you was, what is it about your mom that you would want your boys to know? A lot. And a lot. And my daughter. Um, and my daughter spent a fair amount of time with her, which I'm really thankful for. And we, we talk about Grandma Marion all the time. Um. Her willingness to get up every time, every single time, to me is just it, it, it's the true embodiment of a strength. And to me, what it what I'd like my children to understand what it means to be a cane in our family with our history. And without complaint. Um, she, she was tireless. She did not, there was nothing. The fire was so strong in her, regardless of circumstance. The fire, like, was just inexhaustible. It, it couldn't be extinguished. And there were so many things that were just in front of her that just wanted to, you know, extinguish her. But she didn't. Grit, grit would be one of the, I think grit would probably be the most significant, elegant word choice. Yeah, I know, I know. It's a whole bunch so of it's what this show's about, right? yeah. And obviously, in the book Grit, and a bunch of other studies out there, that they found that that is more significant of a trait than intelligence. As far as... Completely. Well, of a successful person, and whatever success is. Completely. I kind of want to t take a moment to circle back here because knowing grit, knowing what it means to be a cane, knowing what it means to get up strong. I want to go back to the moment when you're with your son. And you, first of all, it's really unfortunate that that's how you found out. Yeah. Like, I think there's like this weird... And actually, I know there is this delicate balance of light and dark and 
good and bad, and, you know, night and day, life and death. But sometimes those lessons don't have to be so close together. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you were in Sweden and you're holding your two day old son and you get this, which is also unexpected. Yeah, 100%. Her health Completely was amazing. Yeah. Um, and for listeners, I, I talked about this, I think, on episode one. Um, I know episode one for dad. It kind of explains uh, sort of, sort of, kind of parallel yep. experiences. Yep. But you know, everyone's, everyone's um, experiences are, are unique. But the sh- sometimes the struggle is universal. And so my father passed away a week after my first son was born, his first grandson. And so that was somewhat expected. So a little bit different, somewhat expected. And when it looked like he wasn't going to make it, I asked him to start writing. He waited too long, coughed up blood on the iPad and died. And so that's what launched a lot of the communication that I do with the world now through social media and podcasts. And as part of the beauty that that you have and also your kids have, both of our kids now, that once they get older, if something happened to us, they have all this content. Like if, if something happened to both of us, right now, a plane lands on us. Like mm-hmm. our kids have a volumes of content mm-hmm. as opposed to if we didn't put anything out, if we never wrote, if we never wrote a book to them, if we never wrote them letters, if we never made videos, like there'd be nothing. And so I'm glad that you have this for, uh, glad that your kids have this and not only your kids, I mean, your kids represent a hugely a huge population of people that are going to benefit from it, but in particularly, if it, nobody else, them. Mm-hmm. Um, just describe that moment. And I'm kind of curious what, because there, no, there is no right answer. But did you feel, I don't know how to articulate it, so let me, let me articulate the way I felt. In that moment, um, the, that day I had found out about my dad, when I was driving back home. I pulled over in the parking lot and my mom couldn't stop apologizing to me. She didn't even tell me anything. She just kept saying she's sorry. And I knew. I come home and I'm holding my one week old kid, just holding him up in front of me. And his arms are like, almost like, the, like a reverse Simba, you know, like just holding him. Just bent over, head down, crying. Nonstop. And I had a bunch of friends over and they had to leave. Because I remember looking out the window and I could see them all crying. And, uh, but there was like almost like this weird switch in me. I don't know if it was like I'm no longer the, I'm no longer the kid. I don't know if that makes any sense, but. 100%. And that everything I had and everything I had learned and all the lessons and everything, I was like, it's like, this is it. So I, I don't know. It's, it's kind of hard to articulate those feelings. And it's been. Five and a half years, and it's still getting, still hits me. But you were in Sweden with, with, with your wife and your your new son, and away from your family. And there's no right decision, but how do you end up deciding? And do you, do you have any regrets with it? Um, 
I don't I don't necessarily know if I have a regret for it um, because I recognize that that's part of the path like making these decisions is the way so all my sisters my nieces would have understood if I had stayed in Sweden for you know an extended time extended time something else was happening underneath all this as well which was and this was a, a weird sort of twist like coming back my mom dying there was a lot of things that happened within a few days but it also shifted um something that can rock everybody and that was financial stability so there was because of there was a lot of uncertainty with what was going to happen with her increased responsibility financially on my part um because of that because i was going to take over a couple things and it was going to require my resources so then immediately i'm like okay i've got now three dependents and like a sudden shift in, in responsibility and so um a little context here because i gotta be careful with doing uh, you know and you know this when you have personal information on a podcast and i might i know some context here that's going yeah. on with you and so this is I, around this I time. Can, I can frame yeah, it if you yeah, want. Yeah. So the base, the basic idea here is that like going into the birth and the death, let's just call it August 2015, I've expired any kind of money that I had in the purchase of the gym. So there's this like juxtaposition of like any sort of um, instability in life we weren't steeled for because the, there was no money there versus having some financial resources to deal with emergency circumstances. Little did I know the next two and a half years would be replete with emergency circumstances. So now you've got this double compression of more and more emergencies, less and less money, more and more pressure, less and less sleep. Like, so everything's going in the opposite direction. As far as natural tensions. And so... Contextually, like I'm describing this this first week of uh, my son's birth and her death, and I'm immediately uh, taking a gig to call for something called the Grid League, which was a um, kind of a short-lived fitness competitive thing, and and uh, and I would do some announcing for them, and they'd pay me respectfully, and I got a call that week to do it. So I've flown across the world, left my son got with my sisters um, and then gotten back down to Los Angeles to call a match. And I'm on the air cameras. You know, it's like I'm alongside somebody from NBC. I mean, it's a full professional production and I've got to bring the A game and I'm just in, I'm in like a different time zone, like physiologically, but then, you know, psycho-emotionally, um, you know, interestingly, all the sport, all the all the other things that I've done in the past, stand-up comedy most especially, prepared me for a moment like that. <laughs> um, because as a stand-up comic, there's so many moments where you don't feel like going on stage and being funny, and yet it's your job. And it's a weird profession that way. Like, you got to bring light when you just want to just spray darkness. And um, 
you know, and then when my show was a, I was considered an uplifting kind of comedian. It's not, there's not a whole lot of them per se, but my, <laughs> my, what I did performance wise tended to be a little bit more tonally positive. And so, um, doing that for extended periods of time is one of the reasons why I retired. It was just like enough of the dance monkey dance, you know, cause it's a weird thing. You got to be authentic on stage and simultaneously, um, professional and there's a disassociation and that dissonance starts to get a little bit bizarre after a certain amount of time and that's one of the reasons why i stepped away from it because i was practicing unreasonable dissonance here's my thing i'm going to pretend like it's in the oh wait it is authentic i'm actually in the moment but it was a false that i was creating false moments i want to really evaluate it critically which is what i did and so you know it's one of the reasons why i stepped away from it um, and that was the right choice for me. When you're in there, let's, I don't know if you had this moment when you're like rocking a polo and a headset and mm-hmm. how are you finding the strength to focus? Like wh- where are you pulling resilience from or how are you compartmentalizing? Um, do you ever feel like I shouldn't be here? Uh, and how are you getting through all this? And at the same time, how are you doing the most good? So there's there's something that I've, I've really been fascinated with recently, and it's this idea, and Jordan Peterson talks a lot about this, but um, he's not the only one to really kind of challenge the idea of happiness. And fundamentally, like if you've got purpose, it will trump happiness every time. Happiness will come and go. It will wane. Um, but purpose is it's what allows 300 Spartans to fight a war against a giant army. Purpose is um, your ability to say goodbye to your father and continue to parent. Purpose is you being a policeman, bald, white, with big arms, getting called names just by your appearance and yet trying to do the public some good. It's purpose behind that. So it's not easy and it's certainly not pleasant, but for a moment you can take those, you know, slings and arrows if you've got a purpose. And so, you know, when I look at my mom and just the, the when her funeral was just so exemplary of, that purpose she had an 80 year span of people turn up that had all been touched by her we had professional basketball coach from new zealand come in the soccer coach from san jose state i mean she influenced like not just aquatic people but you know international sports people as a human coach because she would just not let you get away with like not just giving everything you've got for something. She just didn't, she never could understand people who just didn't have that. That was her. I interestingly that when I look back and I like try to look at the lessons that I can teach, cause I'm a teacher understanding some balance there. Cause she didn't have any balance with that. She just was, she would just 
like crush people if they didn't understand. And there's parts of me that has started uh, when I'm tired, when I'm fatigued, when I'm a little bit more fragile than I am at other moments, like it, it, that, it, that can open itself up. And I will start to like hammer people. And people are very surprised when I pull out the hammer and like start swinging. They're like, whoa, 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 whoa. And, it, and, and I've gotten very comfortable with, yes, this is part of me. And that's, that's also the interesting juxtaposition. And it's my owning of my dark side. Like I'm way more comfortable with it now after these last three years than I was before. Way more comfortable. And, and I'm comfortable with other people being uncomfortable with it. What I'm working on is being able to hold the space for people to be able to recover from that and them to experience trust in that process. That's challenging. Um, I like it. And if I can put in a request is I want the hammer mm-hmm. just personally mm-hmm. from you because mm-hmm. it is like completely purposeful and uh, uh, attention seeking. I'm like, oh, yes. Does that have anything to do with Thor? <laughs> <laughs> That's my son's name. Resist it. Don't know. Um, <laughs> Maybe a little bit now. Yeah. I don't know. Tie it back. You know, you're talking about your mom having a hammer and. Well, look, there, there, there is part of that. I mean, even, even the year that he was born, my wife and I are up against so many. I mean, it was just a brutal year outside of all this stuff. And we're only talking about the death of my mom. And I say only not mm-hmm. to be frivolous but what followed was 12 more deaths over 14 more months and of my father three of my coaches and a bunch of friends one of which I lived with in Minneapolis when I am with my daughter like it just it's a and so you know, I realize that's that's a gift. I'm a teacher. I'm a leader. So what what has happened? What have I experienced personally? I hope I hope that the people that I know don't have to go through anything as drawn out and as brutal as that. As far as just like the, the 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 just the cadence, the intense cadence of that death drumbeat. Boom, boom, boom. And again, with every death, we talked about decision making earlier. Okay, am I going to a service of a my going to the service of my karate instructor, Mr. Navarro. He was a dad to me, but we had a wedding. My, one of my wife's best friends was getting married. And you can get into a husband and wife thing, but for me, it's just like, I wanted to say goodbye to Mr. Navarro. Like, that's what I wanted. I needed some closure for a guy who was there for me for 12 years. And who taught me literally what yin and yang means. Who taught me about breath. Who really beat me up on Fridays. Who taught me about the paradoxical nature of life. And yet, at the time, what's the more purposeful thing? To, to, to be with my wife and to be and to take you know Thor to the to the wedding so that my wife could participate so, and 
you know, so you don't get to say, you know, you're making a choice between do I say goodbye to somebody that was absolutely one of the more meaningful people in my life or do I go and celebrate life, not that I'm intimately connected with my friend's friend, my wife's friend. You know, so it gets into this when you ask, yeah. right, when, when are you doing the most good? Like, like, I believe I made the right choice for the most good of uh, the family. And I also know that I would be able to not, to not go to Mr. Navarro's service and, you know, be with my wife. But it was just, yep. it's just years of that. And so I'm going to, I'm going to make it, uh, I don't know, maybe a 3D question here where like how do you do the most good right and so you have you have like i'm using my little ball of light the light inside of you Mm -hmm. and like how do you do the most good for that in fact i drew a little diagram here Mm -hmm. and then move it outward a little bit and then how do you do the most good for your immediate immediate family maybe close friends and then a little bit further out there is is your community Mm -hmm. and so there's a constant evaluation on, because no matter what, if you can pick something, I'm going to do the most good here. There's again going to be a little bit of shadow. So you're playing like a little evaluation game. So in that particular case, you doing the most good influences your family, right? Mm-hmm. And obviously being there, also a perspective on how you look at things. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, Mr. Navarro. Yeah. And maybe maybe by um, living the life that you're living is could possibly be the most form of respect for him. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but that's what I mean. It's always like, and I'm asking you this. Well, look, a guiding question for me has always been since one of my mentors gave it to me. You know, are your actions contributing to the joy of the world or to the misery? Which is a very simple. That's a very elegant question because it has enormous capacity to organize big mm-hmm. big thoughts, big questions. You know, of of what your what what your actions will be. Now, sometimes you have to wait for the sometimes insignificant sacrifice sometimes you have to wait for the substantial sacrifice to pay off and there's this idea of like again like sacrifice rejected and so i think to me that's the complicating um that's a complicating aspect in between these spaces so you make a choice and you, you're envisioning a long game with your choice most of the time, ideally. I, I've kind of used, I can't tell you where it, it, it's popped up, but it's been in my head for years now. And, and, uh, and that's pain now, pride forever. Sure. And so I, when you said that, are you doing something that is what you're doing affecting, you said world for the, for. Are, are your actions contributing to the joy or to the misery of the world? Because I think you can contribute something that is joyous, if that's a word, mm-hmm. but it's also creating an internal misery. Right. Sacrifice rejected. That's a, right. I mean, yeah. this is biblical. I mean, yeah. it's, it's like every religion has their 
conversation about sacrifice. And there's a reason why, because that's very human. Yep. And there's, there's, there's a concept that's been around for thousands of years. Like, I'm going to sacrifice now for the greater good. And history's laid down with, with people that have done that. And so, in the meantime, sometimes you, you make a decision and everybody gets to call you an asshole until they change their mind. Or don't. But hey, you don't get to decide that. No. Hey, sometimes <laughs> I want to go see a movie by myself, yeah. all right? <laughs> so... Do you think um, well, I also you went through we say fourteen months? No, just over two years, August, basically August of 2015 through the fires in October of um, 2017. All right, now there's a lot of significant stuff in there, and we would have to do, you know. A volume of podcasts, right, to get through the, the significance of each one. So, in the interest of this story, um, I just want to highlight um, relationship with your dad, Mrs. Mm-hmm. and and the fires. Mm-hmm. And we've talked before about before, and I think it was your stepdad mm-hmm. when you kind of knew where when when life was going to be gone mm-hmm. and walking away from that. Well, my, my stepdad passed away in uh, 97, but my dad passed away in the, in 2015. And, um, I remember, and the, the, I'm sure there's dual listeners that listen to this show and the wadcast. And one of the, um, one of the memorable questions that Scott had asked me is how much did you uh, buy the gym for, Kenny? And I was very antagonized at that moment. And Scott not knowing, Eddie not knowing, and Armin not going. I just got off the plane from um, telling my dad that he didn't get to go home and that we were putting him in an old folks' home knowing full well that he was going to die there within a few months. So that deci- I had, that conversation was four years old, four hours old, I arrived in LA, went from LAX to record the podcast. And then these questions were coming at me and I wanted to punch you all in the face. Cause like my experience as a human was like, I'm yep. not enjoying triviality right now. Should have hammered. Um, hey, by the way, without this information that you just gave me, obviously the wadcast has uh, its own personality and purpose, right? The lighter side and the sense of humor which we've been highlighting from Peaceful Warrior, the three laws there, uh, paradox, humor, humor and change. Yeah, yeah. I meant to highlight that earlier. But so it's a fun thing and it serves personality and probably uh, stress relief, at least for me. Sure. But within that, there are some regretful moments for me. And because... That happened. We were having some fun with it. Like on the surface level, having some fun with it. But I keep poking around. Like that was a moment over the, all the years that I remember that like I don't feel good about. Mm-hmm. So I just want to apologize for it. Yeah, no, no. It's all, I mean. Now I really want to apologize because yeah. I had no cause. <laughs> I don't know. Right, but that was, but, and here's the thing. is like I was running through life. Again, like I'm having interactions with people and this was, I'm describing what really, in many ways was a daily experience like moment after moment these kind of like 
intense things that if I were to solely compartmentalize, which essentially I did, and consequently what I'm paying for right now in rehabilitation, because I needed to survive at a certain point. And you know, I I was on a, another podcast on on Wednesday and they're interviewing me about um the series of deaths and one of the things that I mentioned is like something really happened after about a year. And right about the time Chris Moore died, I stopped feeling. I'd get calls. Even when Mr. Navarro, like my instructor, Justine really hit me. But Talia, for example, um, Talia um, was number 13. And you know, Talia um, and her family, when I was first in L.A., hustling, I so little money. And they would put me up. And I'd teach hip-hop at their dance center. And they lived in Orange County. And they, just put, they gave me a key to the house. And I could come in and out, their family. And Talia had this like insane decision to make because she was diagnosed with cancer while pregnant. And was told, hey, if you do the appropriate treatments, you're going to kill the baby. So she so she carried out the pregnancy, and then the baby was born, and within several weeks she was dead. And again, her service... Like, I had a choice, like, do I stay for her service or do I fly back to, to Sweden and get um, Char, Thor, and then Max, because Max had been born. And so, again, what, what, what good are you doing? And on one hand, I'd be doing myself some good to say goodbye to somebody who, like, like gave me food, gave me housing when I didn't have much. And the story alone is just so humanly tragic. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't get more sad than that. And this, the, the sacrifice for the greater good, like, my God. And you know, the moment to celebrate her life came and went, and I wasn't there. And she had been there when I was in need for years. So there's this numbness that happens with all the, and, and I realized part of it was just tired. Like as a, as a, as a dad, I got two kids, I got three kids total, two kids, two and under. And, um, that's a, a lot of noise. It's a lot of noise, and it's a lot of not sleep. 
Mm-hmm. So what helps when you're under significant stress, rest? Wasn't really much of an option, no matter what sort of strategies I could have to facilitate, put myself in a good position to actually get some rest. So this notion of like keep getting up, and I had to, I literally had to, and I got three kids. So three kids and, you know, I'm, I'm supporting a wife. So now, okay, what, what does that mean financially? I mean, just from a sheer financial perspective, comma, remember, we, there's, there's, I, I don't have any, the, the resources that I had are now evaporated <laughs> as far as like just the insulation from those stressors. You got family, you got the business stressors, yeah. you have citizenship stuff yeah. to worry about. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and that was very complicated. Um, you know, my, wife, my wife's integration to the United States has been um, nothing short of problematic. And it's not, it's the sort of time that we're in. You know, people are looking at immigrants. Um, going through... I don't even know the words to really say going through this. I don't want to, it's not a thing or being tasked with this much suffering. Um, do you remember if there's anything that specifically that you did or thoughts that popped up or, or something anyone said or did that, that helped you? Well, I think there's a couple things. One was a question my daughter asked me um, when Justine was shot in Minneapolis. Um, so for context, my daughter lives in Minneapolis. Um, for years, I've been going back and forth. She comes out here. I go out there. Um, and the family that I stay with has been a big part of her and my life. Um, some people may have caught it on the news or perhaps even heard me describe it um, on another podcast. But... Um, Justine, who my daughter loved a lot, uh, called in a disturbance in the back alley. Um, she went out to go help and, um, the cop in the driver seat for whatever reason withdrew his weapon and shot her. Um, and she died. So she was a meditation teacher, yoga instructor, and this, um, amazing, amazing light. Like she was one of Joe Dispenza's lead instructors. So Joe um, wrote a book called Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself and is kind of a thought leader in the meditation world. And and um, and he actually spoke at Justine's services and we had some nice um, time together. And he's a great teacher. But... Um, You know, during Justine's services and then coming back to the house afterwards, you know, there's certain routines that Cameron and I would have, and now they're absent of a physical body. And for a seven-year-old without much experience with death, it's kind of overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Um, And... Justine would measure Cameron every time she came over and like in the doorstop, she'd get be getting taller through the years. And then we're, and Cameron and I are going to bed and she's just sort of like, 
daddy, you know, why did, why did a policeman kill Justine? And, just, and so you got a seven-year-old asking you that question. So as a parent, there's no real, to me, appropriate response other than, well, you're going to do the best that you can. And that you're going to try to describe something extremely complex. And what I attempted to describe to Cameron is like, Cameron, there are going to be times where some things really don't make any sense at all. And we live in a world where sometimes really terrible things happen. And in our lifetime, we may never be able to wrap our heads around why that happened. But what we might be able to remember is the sheer joy and light that Justine was. Because ah, she was Australian, so she just had a natural, like, upbeat nature. like, And she'd call uh, Cameron Muppet. Hey, Muppet. And, and, um, and sometimes she called him Muppet or Monkey. And just had such an easy way with Cameron. And, you know, the th and it was huge news. This was, it was this national news, but it was, it really ran the town in Minneapolis for several months. Uh, you know, at her service, the governor came and, you know, it was a big, it was a big deal. So, um, so, you know, when I, when I look at the, like the depth of the question that she asks me, like that she be, becomes my teacher. Don, who, you know, survived Justine, um, after one of the, the big public service, walked around one of the lakes there in Minneapolis with hundreds of people. And it was a silent walk. Um, and my daughter took my hand and we kind of like shuffled in behind him and just kind of followed. And she had this amazing wisdom about her. She took my hand and she navigated us, uh, us through the people and just went up and, and, um, and grabbed Don's hand. And now she's walking with him holding his hand, mine. And she's our seven-year-old leader embodying the light that Justine was. And unsolicited, because un, we couldn't, there was no talk, it was just something instinctual that was inside her lovely heart. And, um, you know, Don, Don always talks about that moment being one of the most significant moments, positive moments after Justine's death, because there's so much that he will never be able to wrap his head around. And, Mind you, like you, you've got political organizations, legal organizations, like people for guns, people against guns, people for cops, people against cops. Like everybody is hammering him and he just wants to grieve. So people will bandwagon their platforms to use that situation to get out the message that is significant to them. <laughs> Which is another, observing that unto itself is odd because there was a lot of like at the public service there was groups representing all different groups and you're just kind of like wow this is political this is actually political and you're sort of jumping you just go 
wow, we're, we're also capable of this. Not to cast a negative judgment on it, but like that's, it's not this, we're playing for advantage here and not in remembrance. Um, yet there's a seven-year-old's purity who embodies Justine. And so right about that time, like that sort of organized a big concept, which I've known for a long time, but one of my mentors, Mark Devine, um, talks a lot about it, VUCA. You know, the world, is, the world really is volatile and it's uncertain, it's complex, and it's ambiguous, VUCA. And man, I had to describe VUCA to Cameron as best I could using something that wasn't an acronym, but just basically let her know gnarly stuff happens, but what can you take from Justine's lovely existence? Similar to the concept of paradox. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't know if it gets more paradoxical. And so, you know, Justine passes, then Talia passes, and... um, A month after, two months after Talia passes, um, you know, the wildfires of Northern California take out a good chunk of my hometown and, and, and a lot of the neighborhoods that I grew up in uh, knocked out a lot of my friends' homes and it, it burnt um, the original Oak Park to the ground. And... Um, You know, that was just a a reminder. It was just such a symbolic punctuation mark to this whole two years, two months, whatever it is, 26-month period. Can you describe it? The, the, well, on one hand, it's comedic because the level of exhaustion and the the level of like, (laughs) okay, Okay. I mean, there's, there's what happens to you viscerally when you look on the news and see fires and people reporting and they oh, go let me back up. Let me back up. Yeah. Oak park pre-fire pre-fire. Yeah. That's what, that's what oh. I meant. Describe it. Like oh. the land. The oh, building. the land. Yeah, yeah. yeah. About 16 acres, tons of oak trees, um, nine tennis courts, two swimming pools and open fields that I grew up. I, so I would, or I was the, I was a neighborhood organizer of all things athletic. So what I did for years um, after school every day was call every kid that I could to either play football or soccer or um, just basically come over and play. And that over the years morphed into a lot of different things that, that turned into jumping in the pool, doing pool training. We had weights. We had a, a, like a, a little, you know, kind of a, weight room where as we got under our teen years, like some of us would go and lift. Um, I I'd do the Jane Fonda challenge and invite girls over to do that with me. Cause they like the Jane Fonda challenge, the boys I'd lift weights with either way I was winning. So, um, <laughs> you know, and it was just, um, and it was just a place of, um, it's an interesting place as far as it wasn't your typical sort of club. It still had like shades of what, America was in the 50s and 60s, meaning that um, 
there was a giant shift in the time economy for Americans by the early seventies, by the early seventies, um, because of a variety of economic factors, um, both parties in a household were starting to work. And so there became less leisure time and our club sort of represented leisure time. So a lot of the membership would come, the moms would come and bring the kids and the kids would play basically all summer. The kids would spend their entire summer just at the poolside. And the moms would, you know, use a tanning lotion called Banda Soleil, which was actually the reverse of tan uh, sunscreen. It was, it would amplify the UV radiation. So it was uh, a very a potent at mm. browning people. And, um, so, um, there's a generation of skin cancer that we contributed to, um, <laughs> intentionally. Um, but we raised all those children in very heavily chlorinated waters. So <laughs> just great for everybody. Um, and then they grew up on Charleston shoes and, uh, a red, the, red vines. Did the uh, lotion start the fire? <laughs> The remnants of it. It continues to be flammable. It has a half-life of one trillion years. So um, that's Band of Soleil. Um, but it was just a, it was a giant um, playground tucked in the, a corner of Santa Rosa that was untouched sort of by development, which the entire area was really um, hammered by development. And we, we kept this big plot of land. And... Um, you know, it's just, I, that's where I developed my appreciation for organized people to do things physically. I was watching my mom do it, and then I was doing it with tons of intentionality as a kid. Do you, well, when you get the news of the fire, obviously it's, that's the timing of it, the passing of all these super important people in your life, very close, all these lessons, all these things that have created, helped you become the man that you are and help you become the father that you are. The, the, did you feel a sense of, um, like the past is lost or the, the future potential is lost? Both. Part of the plan was to keep Oak Park in Northern California and then, um, you know, establish a good business here in Los Angeles and then either move the family up to Sonoma County or um, go up and take over for my mom and run what was what's always been our family business. Um, and then potentially either locate there or develop a team to run the future of what that, that business could look like. And so effectively, it was going to be a wellness institute. And, and my mom and I had pinned that for, you know, in the late 2000s. Now, what complicated things severely is that my mom didn't leave a will, and then immediately, and this is what I was talking about earlier, we pushed into a lot of emergency financial decision-making because there was nothing in place. So, Hey, hang on. I'm going to say this um, low-key, but I just want to say, ouch, if I can. Yeah. Yes. Ouch, Kenny. Ouch. Yeah. Sure. All right. Because the rest of the stuff is a little bit different, but dang, man. Yeah. Ouch. Yeah. I mean, it was, and it was the soil that I was raised on. Like it was, it, it's a beautiful place for children to be. It's just a, it's just a lovely, wonderful, 
um, amazing place to grow. Truly. Just enough nature, just enough people, just enough human contact, just enough physicality. All of it. Have you... I'm going to skip ahead a little bit because I know there's obviously you had to make some financial decisions and legal battles. You know, I, I'm yeah. not, you know, I'm sure as, as, <laughs> as yeah. what happens in, in some family businesses sometimes. Yeah. Um, is that still going? So we had to make a decision to sell it. And because I, <laughs> So many like interesting twists. Like, perhaps if I'd not bought the gym here, I might have been in a position to angle to purchase the ownership, the rifle ownership of my sisters that didn't want to keep it. But the problem was was that the family was split. So we got basically two members of the family that don't want to keep it, two that want to keep it. And so uh, my other sister not, didn't have any resources to speak of. Now we could have gone third party and that always in my gut. Cause I know, you know, my clientele, I mean, it, it like my client entire client roster wouldn't probably be bothered by the overall value of that land. And for me to ask as a friend, Hey, do you want to invest in this business? But there was some deep sense of like family pride that I had that just said, I need to either own this outright or bury it altogether. And again, these choices, good, it's a good, mm-hmm. I don't know if it's a good choice, but there was a reality. You know, you've got, you know, Commander Schultz, Navy Commander Schultz has this great visual. He always talks about like, on one side, you've got your vision and you've got this band around your waist pulling you towards that vision. But on the other side, you've got reality. And it has a band around your waist and it's pulling you in an opposite direction. So where are you? You're in the middle. That area is truth. You've got something inside of you that yearns for a vision of the future. But you also have a set of responsibilities right now that you need to amend for. So visionaries sometimes lose sight of their responsibilities and over realists often don't leave much behind other than, you know, this is how it is. Now, somewhere in the middle, I think is a lovely place. And I really appreciate that idea from commander Schultz. But this was one of those things where I looked at the reality of the situation. It's like, we don't have a choice, but to sell this. Now along this came like all sorts of, things to complicate the financial aspects of it. One is promise from basically government agencies like, hey, this is going to get carried. We're going to look at these things and we'll get back to you at a certain time. And nothing was ever executed on the timeline that it was supposed to be. Meanwhile, I was making choices, assuming that I would get some sort of inheritance knowing I need a little bit of support at some point just because of the decisions that I've had to make the last couple of years. Like I'm running out of, I, I, I got no ammo. I mean, I'm getting literally hammered here. So <laughs> that's an unfortunate battle that you have to be in. Yeah. 
So, to put it lightly. Yeah. And, you know, through this, like something happened recently. I realized that, you know, there's, there's a lot of aspects of our business that are really, really strong. But then there's like this one area that is, I didn't know that was weak and susceptible. But all this pointed that out. I'm like, in a year from now, we will not be in that position again. It's just, a, you know, the, the way some businesses ebb and flow. There was like this one fluctuation that I had and I, it, it wasn't foreseeable. Um, and, but now I know that the conditions that led to that circumstance may be different in the future, but I'm going to steal the business against that now knowing that it, that, that could happen. For example, mm. um, I went up to see the property and do my grieving in May, um, which it took me about nine months to get up there. Yeah, eight, nine months. And it was, not, it was like, if I look at how I responded to the um, experience, like I was miserable. I was miserable to my wife. We brought our kids. I was not, we stayed with some of my best friends. I was just, I was having a miserable time. And I just couldn't, I was having process exhaustion, I suppose. Like I just couldn't, like this is, it was so profound, like the devastation. And then also like it's, it symbolized the future and it single-handedly eliminated all the legacy tradition that we had had since I was a boy. 40 plus years of family traditions. 40 plus. Gone. And they're not coming back. And so now this, it's very confusing. Like, both parents are gone. The physical place where we gathered as a family unit is gone. So that was the centralizing force. Now I'm, I'm the most centralizing person in the family, but like everybody's kind of scattering now in the family. So it's just like this, this energetic scattering because the matriarch is gone. Um, my dad's gone. And so there's, there's just this, like the, the reason to be there, the purpose for being there isn't, strong like it was and oddly like i'm in this i'm trying to evaluate like uh, okay well the, the boys they're going to get stories of their grandparents cameron knew both of them but you know as much as a five-year-old's going to know them and that's a limited sort of exposure well knowing you is knowing her a hundred percent. And if that, if so, obviously you can't control what has happened, but you can control moving forward. And if there's certain lessons, have you thought about recording even private podcasts for them or writing a book about your mom to, to them? Yeah. I think at some point, like a lot of people have talked to me about a book, um, you know, from these two years, um, you know, I write routinely, um, just privately. Um, I've written a lot of letters to my daughter. 
um, part of my uh, therapy is to write um, notes to the to the people that have passed mm-hmm. letters notes to the people that have passed but simultaneously um, it there's also interestingly like timing of these things like I was having this conversation with my wife last night I'm just getting to the place now energetically where I can even reflect like there's been so much like look it's weird there's there's a paradoxical lesson here right there's like the, the the fragility of life like any like I I've clearly learned that life is not you know Uh, guaranteed and it's going to expire for everybody. And so I've had a lot of death in my life prior to this, but like the, just the, the compression of significant people that have passed, like, okay, that teaches that, but on the one that, so that's on the like understanding that intellectually, but then there's another side of it, which is like just by the, the volume of it, like I am just getting to a place now where I can, energetically reflect with any kind of clarity because during this time there's just so much disclarity and there's a lot of things in life pulling against clarity and I think clarity is like one of the things in civilization right now that is you know for a long time information was the the thing but now like clarity is more of a critical resource because it's too much information being and, and too many pulls and too many tugs yeah. and so much noise and it's just it's endless. Well, you have obviously there's stages of stages of grief, <laughs> right? Generally, if we actually do a textbook breakdown of that, that's usually for like one event. Mm-hmm. But you might have been at a certain spot in your grief and then you get a hit with another one, and now you're in a confusing location on like yeah. where you're at, and then you hit with another one. Yeah. So you're completely spun around in so many different directions on grief, on clarity, on your ability to, to probably even smile. Yeah. And have it actually be genuine. Right. Um, you know, that is a tremendous amount of, of resilience and grit that is expected of you. And to make it to a spot where you still have the strength to, to do good and to, to raise kids. Because even just for those of you out there, if you don't that don't have kids, having having one kid, especially a young kid, is is really difficult. But now you add in two young kids under two years old, <laughs> so kids are fantastic. They're great. They're, you know, I love my kids, but there is, especially for for people like me who I need my solitude. I need my alone time. I'm not alone here, right? With that, everyone kind of needs their thing to help them recenter, refocus, gain clarity. But sometimes life's not up to you. You kind of lose a little bit of sense of self or, or at least timing of when you want to have your sense of self when you have young kids. And so just being in that turbulent environment itself is chaotic and can be traumatic and dealing with the loss of a parent while trying to raise a new spirit into this world, into a good person. So there's a whirlwind of stuff that you're going you're you're going through, and on top of that, you're you're doing announcing, you're writing, you're coaching, you're running a business, you're making decisions that are going to echo through generations, mm-hmm. and even just the 
the trauma of making that decision creates some grief. So holy moly, man, you were underwater. Um, two things I want to point out. Number one, I'm, I'll save number one for after number two. I'm going to start with number two. Hearing you talk about Oak Park and then knowing what you've done with um, Oak Park LA now and the physical location and traditions and everything, I'm listening to you as, as best that I can. But what I'm actually seeing, and I'm looking at, you have the Oak Park Los Angeles shirt here, and you have a, a silhouette of an oak tree. Mm-hmm. Now, that's just a shirt, right? But I'm sitting here smiling because I'm looking at Oak Park. It's not a dirt. It's, it's not necessarily one tree. Yeah. It's you. And so you go wherever you go and place those roots. That's going to that's gonna be Oak Park. And then we go that when you when you sink in those roots and have them grow from a dirt like 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 trees do or like a lotus flower from mud. And you do that with some effort. I think that is really going to make your mom proud. In many ways, that was the intent of of naming it. There's there's a lot of there's enormous symbolism in the naming of Oak Park, and I think it's something that, frankly, like our but we haven't even really started to communicate to the people that are actually, you know, participating in at, at Oak Park. Um, first and foremost, like the Oak tree has been deeply symbolic in cultures <laughs> for a long time. And historically it's been a place where, where people meet to gather strength, to go on to, um, do their lives or do their battles or whatever it is. Um, Metaphorically, the roots of an oak tree are often broader, more deep, more extensive than the actual branches. The legacy of my mom naming Oak Park, or or, excuse me, owning Oak Park and then passing that on symbolically is a nod to her and then it's simultaneously a nod to Andy Petronic who started CrossFit Los Angeles in 2004. And if I look at the tree of people that has started and come through our doors since the beginning to go on to do extraordinary things, the acorns from this tree are significant, profound, and heavily impactful into thousands of lives. And it's something that I don't take lightly. And... I wanted to name the business something that reflected and respected all of that. How do you... um I mean, how do you, outside of articulating and doing, doing podcast interviews like this, how do you get part of, because earlier you said that some of the, the, the traditions are, are gone forever, but how do you get some of those traditions? Family traditions. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know, like there's, there's, a, there's a weird passing of the torch here, right? Mm-hmm. Where the matriarch is gone, but now you have a, a patriarch, yeah. right? 
and really starting to fill into that role and and how do you pull some of those lessons and do it here and now and start coming up with some of those traditions right so for example mm -hmm. you said it used to be the guy that got people together mm -hmm. and frolicked about have you, have you thought about, well, you kind of are doing that, mm -hmm. right? Class times, you're pulling people sure. together sure. and frolicking about yeah, sure. with deliberate intention. So I don't know, I don't know if you've caught that parallel with your life. Well, part of it is a, a sense of appropriate progression, you know, because <laughs> you can't, because you get into this thing where Jeff Johnson, who's one of the founders of Nike and uh, one of my track coaches used to, he used to get on me. He's like, Kane, you're forcing it. I have a capacity sometimes to force things. And, you know, that's one of the things where I, I got to be mindful not to, not to force it. Um, similarly, if I'm looking at like the family traditions, for example, my wife has this um, really amazing place in Sweden, it's part of their family tradition. That's as deep as Oak Park was for us, and as meaningful and significant as a as a as a meeting ground for the family, and a great place for the children to spend the time. And so, I'm looking at a life that sort of invites um, a lot of time for the kids to spend there, to some degree, and then simultaneously, I'm waiting through all this all the enormity of the last couple of years and just trying to give myself enough time to evaluate with some discretion how I'm going to sort of deploy my resources to create these because if I go and just use what's a natural gift for me energy I got a couple of gifts and just a, like a a lot of energy tends to be um, one of the things that I'm equipped with as a, as a general tool set, but that's also something to recognize in the last couple of years. Like that's been really, really depleted. Like, and I can feel that I can feel it be, I can feel it in my bones. I can feel it behind my eyes. I can see it in my blood work. I mean, I can see, you know, I, it's just, you, you can't run from that without paying that tax man a little bit. So there's some restoration that needs to happen. And I'm not, I, I know that the decisions on these things are coming, but I'm not trying to force them right now. Yeah. I was actually going to start talking about, you know, slowing down to move fast. Yeah. That's what's up right now. It really is like intuitively and consciously. That's what's happening right now. And you know, I've, I've, I've good, great capacity for velocity and grinding. Like I can just, you know, I've, but just grinding and enduring isn't it's 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 exactly right it, and it comes at a price and you know so grinding and endurance have have done me well for a lot of things um i've got a big trail of extraordinary things left behind like a big trail like that were life-altering for the people that engage with them and positively but now the lessons are a little bit different and now what needs to emerge is a more evolved version of myself. Yeah, I don't want you to paint a dirty car. Yeah. 
And another thought that popped up was, um, you know, spending time sharpening the ax, right? Yeah. Say Abe Lincoln, he had yeah. six hours of top of tree. He'd spend five hours sharpening the ax. Yeah. Yeah. So another observation along the same lines is that you, ha- you, you always have stuff. Stuff will always be there. Stuff to do, projects to do, things to put energy to. But if I already have one wish for you, it would be to slow down for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. Like, shh. Right? Yeah. Well, and that's one of the things is that like, so all those things provided. So on one hand, they provide for the three other people that were dependent on me. And if it weren't for those things, those provisions would be very different than what they have been. Now, in recognition of that, like it, ha- it necessarily has to be different down the road. I have a, this like weird, and I don't know if it's the way our society is set up, but this weird like pickle with what they need from you. And I almost have like this resentment towards my job. Mm-hmm. Because obviously what my family needs from me, I have to go away to give it to them. Right. But then also what they really need is my time and attention. Right. And being there. Right. And so this is a weird space that I'm stuck in. It is is a modern, very critical existential thing. Yesterday I was giving a presentation to a friend from SEAL Team 6. And it was about helping some of his um, colleagues, basically. And what happens for often for people that are responding, there's, there's, there's lots of swords to it. Like you get people that are called, called to duty, called to a, a very high purpose, um, for you, you, you serve a very high purpose societally. Um, and then there's an immediate purpose, which is also a high purpose, which is to provide attention and energy to your children, but you don't have much space left after doing the other thing. And so, and this is what I was talking about with, with the original Oak Park, right? What did it look like originally? In the, in the 60s and 70s, there was this leisure time where parents would spend a lot of downtime with kids because they had downtime to spend with the kids but there's a lot more going on these days as far as one of the terms that i really appreciate recently that's come up for me is the attention economy so not only is there a financial economy that more and more people are needing to work at greater lengths of time Mm -hmm. um the other thing that i i realize in, in serving like the the seal population and especially professional athletes and executives is that ambition comes with prices, big prices. So if you're the Venn diagram, all right, I'm gonna plot my family onto this thing, business and work onto one thing, physical practice on one thing, recovery on another thing, it's very disjointed. And the chips on that chart go heavily on one side. And that's a really interesting thing. And now we're also living in this, 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 world where the notion of the integrated life is much more appreciated. The downside about that is that if we look in particular like at law enforcement or um, you know, military 
you know, you're going to get more camaraderie, more, more intense, deep human connection, more brotherly love, more, more human love in extreme conditions than you might do visiting your old friends from college or high school or your wife, husband, or children. Mm-hmm. Now, that is a weird avatar human existence for people to be in. And there's also humor there. A lot of humor. Oh, tons. Right? Because it's it 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 it's it, it's just it's paradoxical. Like and and guilt. Yeah. Yeah. Grief. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff. You know one little thing that's changing that? I don't want to derail this, but the the thought of of connection, of um camaraderie of dealing with stress, dealing with grief, using humor to do all this stuff, interactions, um, communication, relationships, all that landscape in law enforcement is changing. In my experience with the body worn cameras. Yeah. Now they, I love mine. I love it. Yeah. Cause like, <laughs> yes, look and see. But let's just say we're, we're dealing with something really traumatic right now. And we look and I'm like, hey, we, we kind of just make like a little joke amongst ourselves or whatever we're going to do to deal right. with this. That thing gets broken down. And so now what yeah. happens is we just kind of look at each other. and Yeah. Anyways, whole other topic. Yeah. Not that anything's wrong, but like sometimes you deal with stressful situations with humor. Completely. And then out of context, exactly. the, that's the problem yep. is that like, yep. you know, contextual demands and contextual judgments are not always yep. aligned. You know, another, I'm not, man, you get me going here. Another funny thing, I just talked about this or posted on, on Instagram story or something is like your persona or whatever you got going on online and social media tends to have built can, can tend to build relationships with people you've never met. Mm-hmm. And some of these people I've never met based on the podcast and stuff online, I have like supreme relationships with versus actual like friends that don't even support it at all. Mm-hmm. Like they just kind of look, they don't, they don't comment. It's a weird like thing between like actual physical world relationships and connections through podcasting and social media. I don't know. That's a whole other topic. It is. And that really, it, it winds me up, but I'll... No, I know. I'll reserve I know. some of that. I'll, I'll say this, because I know... If you guys want to hear Kenny go off, go listen to um, the latest episode of Body of Knowledge. Mm-hmm. It was uh, the, the culmination of Volume 2. Yep. Where you talk about this. Yeah. I do want to say, I'm going to add to that, because everyone's... I'm sure they're pressing pause and going right to that episode. <laughs> it's not like you don't have enough stuff going on. What is social media? Is what we're doing right now social media? Is this or po- is podcasting social media? So I've given this a lot of thought recently. Um, directly, I don't know what to qualify um, a podcast as. However, from the first days of attempting to get friends on MySpace. To now, and understand that as a comedian, something really interesting happened on MySpace, and that is that Dane Cook made 
a million friends and on on Facebook and or on um, on MySpace. And what that did is it changed the professional landscape for comedians. And a lot of other platforms were starting at this time as well. YouTube, for example. So I can give a couple of illustrations of like how that changed the nature of creativity within a year or two um, for a, a very specific medium. So the medium in this case is stand-up comedy, but another platform outside of actually being on the stage being funny became this vehicle to communicate. So what happened then is that a whole generation of comedians was influenced by this and musicians. So comedians and musicians really, really did try to follow that bandwagon. And what it meant for me is it like, if I looked at the time landscape of my day, what, how my day used to look like as a stand-up comedian, for example, would be I'd write for two hours in the morning. I'd review uh, tapes and um, video or, or audio of shows a little bit later in the day. And then I would either travel to a show or prepare for a show. Mid-afternoon, in the middle of the day, I'd work out. And if, if I was working with clients and doing some fitness-related, I'd do that. Um, then by the mid-2000s, MySpace... And then I remember distinctly, I was living in Santa Monica, and I was on my laptop just clicking friends on MySpace. And I looked out the window, and I'm like, what the fuck am I doing? And there's this weird, like... I get, it was the first time with everything else to develop my career, it all felt connected and worthwhile. The peripheral, like the, I'm, dri I'm driving all the way to Winnemucca to do a show for $100 and driving back. Yeah, for sure, I'd do that. And the drive from either Los Angeles or the Bay Area to Winnemucca, Nevada, or Elko, Winnemucca's a little further, um, it's completely worth it. But then something that was free and, you know, I was told can help me get the word out about my stand-up comedy shows was suddenly I felt a, an exasperation of, I'm losing my life here. I didn't thrive in that environment. And then the next thing was Facebook. And a lot of my friends back home were like, oh, dude, we'll, we'll connect. And at, at the first wave of Facebook was good. And then I had a couple creepy followers from my stand-up days kind of like um do like kind of have a couple inappropriate connections and then you know i put up photos of my daughter and i just didn't realize the mm -hmm. and so there's this like weird famous certainly not famous but famous enough to have people get creepy about it and i was like uh like and and Every time I went on, I didn't feel, I literally didn't feel good. Like it, my being felt. Oh, that's enough. It, 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 and it wasn't the creepy stuff. It was the actual engagement of the experience. Now, recently I've been trying to understand what's happening neurologically. And I came across an old student of mine that I used to teach at Sonoma Country Day School, Tristan Harris. Now, Tristan was this very clever student at Sonoma Country Day School. And he used to have us do, I teach the, I ran the drama program, and he would do magic shows. And then he would go to the computer lab, and he'd teach Mr. Fitzgerald the computer tech, actually computer tech. And Mr. Fitzgerald was out of his mind, brilliant. But Tristan was like, he was literally a prodigy with computers. 
fast forward, we're staying in touch through the 2000s. Um, and in the middle 2000s, it was by phone and email. And then we had a phone call. I don't remember what year it was, but uh, probably the late 2000s is my guess. And I would try to like let him know and, and the group of kids that I used to teach that were now of age to see me at a comedy show. And I used to like call people when I was in the Bay Area that I knew were still in the Bay Area. So he was a wonder kid at Stanford and he developed a company called Apture. What Apture did was develop a technology that was specifically designed to help the economist deliver further investigation into a topic on its digital platform. So what his technology did was, oh, we've referenced this article with these sites and these, these people. If you want to dive further, click on it. So his whole intent was to help journalism, the economist, develop a more clear, more researched, more healthy understanding of the topics written about. Google sees this and says, Tristan, you are one smart son of a gun. I say we buy this. We value your company at a lot of money. We'll buy it, and why don't you come and do design for us? He sells the company, goes to work for Google. Then, this kid who used to do magic shows, and the whole reason that magic is important in this story and why I'm sharing it, is because the thing that he wanted to do technologically is to keep people, like, what's behind the magic trick? Go a little bit deeper and you can actually find the truth. So he developed that technology, literally. So Google puts him in a room. And about 2011, 2011 was the last communication that I had with him, ironically, on Facebook. And by 2012, 2013, he's selling this to Google, and then he's realizing, I've created a monster because this is quickly transforming, and what we now know is clickbait. What he subsequently communicated is something very powerful. And it's a very simple idea that like, look, the fiduciary relationship of any of these companies is based on impressions and screen time. That is the literal valuation of any of these billion dollar companies. That's the valuation of it. So they use very clever dopamine tactics, por ejemplo, delaying the time that you can see who's uh, retweeted any post that you may have on Twitter. They know exactly how long to make you look. It's not the connection speed. There's a certain level of time that makes you want it just enough to go back and recheck. So now, he jumps and goes, look, technology is not the villain, but we can't simply say it's a tool. If you're saying it's a tool, you're a tool of something much bigger. How do I know? Me 
and a handful of people design the addictive technology that you're using. By the way, there's algorithms and a thousand people smarter than anybody out there designing this. So even if you have tools, psychologically, emotionally, to deal with it, it's still smarter than you and pushing your decision-making into a different part of your brain with intent. Now again, that is how this whole thing creates value. So I want to mm-hmm. stay with me for a minute. So I look at this and I am, I am exasperated at this conversation because I have all, since the literal first days of, of, of my space, never felt good about a minute or an hour or two hours spent on any of the mediums. Now, knowing what's happening by design, intentional design, I'm much more concerned. I'm mostly concerned about my own sabotaging behaviors. So in the last couple of years, I've had obviously very little time. There's been moments where like, and I didn't even actually understand this. Like I'd be with Thor, for example, trying to put him down and he'd kind of doze off and I'd just be like, man, I'll go on. And there's the stories on the Instagram that just kind of keep scrolling through. Mm-hmm. And there'll be times where that just be on and I'd fall asleep. I wake up two hours later and it's just like scrolling through, you know, and it stops. Mm-hmm. They, the stories become gray or whatever. It's just that, that they don't keep feeding because they're, you've been on so long. And I'm like, Oh, I actually fell asleep during some sort of weird feed. And then I was like, I'm, I'm abandoning in the little time that I have, I'm actually abandoning the children and I don't even really interact on the thing. Like I don't typically respond to people and yet it, and I am now educated and aware as to what the technology is doing. And I've always felt very bad about how I feel like just physiologically, I don't feel good. Psychologically, I feel scrambled and apparently there's a reason for that. So now I'm really dedicated to exploring this. Like I just had my staff read, uh, he's got a Ted talk, um, an incredible article. And I'm very much of the opinion that uh, like as soon as I can, I want to be dark from, from short form social media. Cause the conversation that I'm trying to have with people is long form. I've been told by everybody I've been shamed, literally shamed. Well, Kenny, you got so much to say. You should say it. On, and I'm like, I, I have never once felt like cramming this orange into a square box or vice versa. It just doesn't feel right. And I continue to be told, yes, but you're an effective leader. You're an effective coach or you've got like some helpful things to say. And I still am like deeply conflicted. And so the play for me long-term is and is is really how to go dark and go if if at all possible to something that rewards what is also historically sincere the number of people that we can humanistically engage with most people 150 Dunbar 
other people can go more, some people a little less, but really, man? And as much as I hear people chime into my ear, you can expand, expand, expand. I'm like, I'm of the mindset, partially because of everything that I've gone through the last couple of years, but it's just like, I don't need to expand. I need to be very powerful for the people that I'm leading. Because we each got a 150. Mm-hmm. And if it's this imaginary thing, now, leaving ideas and concepts behind is different than the manifestation of being liked by a number. And the education of Tristan, the work that he's doing, my personal relationship with him, and the inspiration that I once supported in him. Me and Mr. Cummings supported him doing magic. Like, it's not the reason why he created the technology yeah, and now yeah. left it, whatever. It's just, we, we gave him a little bit of landscape to, to strong. You do you. You're a badass, dude. And he was a quirky kid. Like, not all the other kids understood him. But we loved, we lo- like, loved this kid. One time we had him do the piano man, and he's like Billy, blind Billy Joel. It was the most hilarious thing for a school play. So I'm looking at this thing now going, when you when you ask a question, what is social media like? I'm, I don't know if I, I'm certainly not the person qualified to, to, to give any definition of that. But what I will say is this: the medium dictates the message. I am not compelled by me, by mediums that make me feel crappy as a human being. Rarely, on a podcast, do I feel shitty. Rarely, on a podcast, do I feel like yeah, we can't explore these ideas with a little bit of imperfection with a little bit of like let's let's work through something difficult here that to me is compelling because that to me is very human but canning it i left stand-up comedy for so many reasons one of them i briefly described earlier but one of my repulsions about short-form social media is that these are Look, I'm not explicitly criticizing you because you talk a lot about vulnerability, but sometimes I cynically look at posts about vulnerability because the medium doesn't match necessarily what vulnerability feels like. And hold on. Yep, yep. To me, that's a critical, that's a critical distinction. And I know because professionally what I did is mock a stance for a reaction. Mock a stance or emotion for a reaction. I was paid to do that. And I can recognize the toxicity and the dopamine and the sheer addictive nature of that can leave you crazy with overexposure. So I looked at a professional field of colleagues and stand up and went, there's a lot of these guys, I appreciate the, the level of brilliance of this. I like stand up comics are brilliant humans. They are smart, 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 brilliant, sensitive, clever geniuses. The, the tribe as a whole, I'd put them up there with doctors <laughs> as far as like sh- just utter brilliance. But I also look at, wow, the general profile 
over time really seems to get beat down because you can yourself. The population wants you to be a certain thing because that's what they're consuming, yet the need for novelty is insatiable for humans. Well, give me the thing. Ah, no, give me something new. Nah. I don't know what he's, I don't know what this guy's doing. It's new. I don't, really, I, I don't know if I know what like. I like the old guy. And so, man, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting economy to play with your psychological health in. And so I think that short form social media is not too far away from what the overall life of stand up comedy is like. You're playing to get liked. The companies are playing for your attention and screen time. And again, it's a, it might be the most powerful tool, if people want to qualify it that, as that, in modern existence. But it, the, 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 the unfortunate thing is it doesn't feel like a powerful tool. That's the dilemma. This sword is clearly a weapon. I recognize that that you've got here on the wall. I can, and the hammer, oh, these two things, if used, could create a lot. I recognize that, but I don't recognize the damage moment to moment as I'm interfacing on these short form things. I am fueled by podcasts. I sense, for me personally, I'm fueled by longer form storytelling. I'm fueled with the human narrative being expressed in its authentic forms. Meaning, man, at the bookends of the human experience, like shining light on the struggle and like, or going through the struggle and I'm going to can it. And then here I am being vulnerable selfie it's like nah i'm a professional performer like i like i don't know if i buy that with the level of authenticity that it just it doesn't construe that way for me as i relate to it and again i'm the biggest hypocrite am i still do i still use i don't really go on facebook but and i don't really engage on twitter I have accounts and on Instagram I'll go on and I'll like things periodically or whatever. And usually it's on some, it's in a moment of time where, and if I just really reflect on my daily habits, if I were to get some time back, it would be there. Like it's on in between as I'm waiting for things and I'm just like, man, this is, they're, they're, they're nuke in my mind. They're nuke in my experience. Yep. And I, and that's this, like, People can tell me all they want. Like, Kenny, you really missed. And I did miss. I, I, like, I have missed 100% on the capitalization, the financial capitalization that I could have gained from, from having a, like a more effective social media presence. Like, I know that. Well, a couple of things. One, social media is what you make of it for every individual. Two, you just, what success? How do you define success? You know? It's not likes. Maybe some people it is. I don't know. That's up to them. I think actually you can disable a lot of that stuff. Oh, you can. There's a lot that you can disable. 
but still the, 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 the algorithms are working to keep your attention on it. And that's, again, that's the nefarious thing about it. I, I, I in some ways disagree with like, it's like defining of success, the, 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 the nature it's, they know like the design of it is metric driven. Like that's a human design. That's human design. When you talk to yeah. Tristan, you even you know this in Tristan, like that is, that's psychology. What's the scoreboard? You know what? Because I'm gonna put the brakes on it. But what you could potentially do have somebody run like the teachings of Kenny Kane, and they deal with everything. I don't know, right? I, I don't know what the answer is to. It. And either way, I'm a hypocrite. Like truly, because I'm still on the platforms. I just I'm like I'm just trying to figure out how how to eject. Well, no, you're not a hypocrite. Because you. Oh not, no, I am. I well, am. Stay with me here. Because this whole time you've been talking about you and your relationship with it. You're not telling me how to do it. Or no, I'm not. You're not no, telling no, no, no. And so you, and this is another thing, a, a, a certain amount of respect, right? And plus, you have a gift and you have sometimes a curse, but a gift. And that is awareness. You're hyper aware and you, you seek understanding and you seek why. You can get stuck there a lot, right? And mm-hmm. it can it can like prevent you from doing some things and, and not doing some things. Um, there is no necessarily right answer here. Only for you and you making that personal choice and feeling good about it. That's it. Is anybody in your life directly going to benefit from you doing an Instagram account right now? No. The only thing that I can see, and this is a decision that I've made for me, and I've talked about this before, is majority of my posts are with the thought of my 18-year-old son seeing it one day and in case I'm not here anymore. Mm -hmm. I looked for a lot of different ways of figuring things out on how to do that writing. I was like, well, I can lose writings. I could, I've looked at third party apps to keep it like evergreen. I'm like, I don't know if that's gonna be around. And so I made a decision to let go there. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously there are some, some drawbacks to it. <laughs> a couple benefits, though. <laughs> a couple benefits. And I won't get into it too much. It's prevented some suicides. Mm-hmm. Just that alone like is a perspective to me that has like, um, I don't know. I'm, it's worth a sacrifice for me, for my own hormones Mm -hmm. to do stuff like that. Yeah. So that's what I mean. So each person, it is what you make of it internally. I'm not telling you to do it. In fact, I'm telling you not to do it. Mm -hmm. And I'm telling you, you should feel a hundred percent okay with it. Mm -hmm. It's cool. Or if you do have one, just like a, Legitimately, if you're somewhere and you have, there's nothing you could possibly do, <laughs> which there always is. Like, yeah, you, I can think of you, everything to do in life. You can go sit that. in a corner and be completely grateful for it. Can you focus on your breath? Do some breath work. Do some meditation. There's, you can sit in an elevator. There's always like, you admire the elevator, the artwork that's in there, how it was developed, the size of it, the temperature. Why did they put this there? The sound of the bells. Um, by the way, have you been to Legoland? No, no. At the Legoland, I'm there. I'm down there all the time. Oh my gosh! At the Legoland hotel, not the new one, but the you get in the elevator, boop, and as soon as the doors close, 
a disco ball starts going. They start, there's <laughs> lights everywhere and it turns into a, a dance party. Yeah. And then you hit the floor, boom, and then everything goes off. And you're like, but at that point in time, in there, in that moment where generally people in the elevator are, are, are on their phones scrolling, boom, everyone's like looking at each other, laughing in the moment and dancing with each other. Mm-hmm. I don't know, it was a weird little lesson for me. Well, yeah, I mean, the default pattern of humans, we're, we're in an attention economy. And so I'm a teacher. I'm concerned about the attention that's in our economy right now. So these platforms are f- like fragmenting people's awareness, literally, or their consciousness is split. Their attention is split in real time. You see it as a cop. We've talked about this. People mm-hmm. are on their phones. They're checking the, their accounts as they're driving. Mm-hmm. Bad. Now, look, I, I will challenge that it is what you make of it. I'm, I, I am, I'm saying publicly that we're being made. Mm-hmm. This is facilitating relationships that we wouldn't otherwise had. And my greater concern is that's not explicitly communicated, nor is that explicitly understood by the consumer. So that to me is that there's such a disproportionate relational set of power on the, on the two sides of the agreement. So on one side, you're going, I agree to terms and services. On the other side, it says, great, we're going to provide you with the service and data mine you. And we're going to guide you to different, and these things that are going to work on very complex levels are going to guide you into different sequences. Now, do I do the same thing? Somebody comes into my gym and my job, our team's job is to guide them. Now, the difference there is that it's very explicit. I'm coming to you for a professional relationship. You're to guide me. Okay. We're going to do some deep investigation and see how it is we can put you in a position for the things that you want to do. Now, along the way, if you don't like that, you should bounce. If you don't feel like we can provide that service, you got to be out. Because if you're not seeing progression for those things, we're not doing our job. Conversely, and this is where I'm moving the business to most likely eventually, is if our people aren't being accountable to the things that they say that are important to them, we might eventually start canning them. I probably shouldn't say that publicly, but I'd like the business to go that direction. Because what that does is makes both, both parties much more in agreement and working together collaboratively on growth. Yeah, what is it like? What you tolerate is your standard. Yeah, I mean that's one that's one way to look at it. Another way could be that that's holding space, depending on the context. Like if somebody has just had some sort of crazy circumstance, there might be a reason to tolerate a little bit more yep. on occasion. Yep. Yep. Flip side is that is maybe that person needs more love. Yeah. Right. Same dichotomy of life. Well, no, that's that's the thing. Is it yeah. like you know these things aren't so black and white? No, and you, you know, perfect example. You never know what kind of struggle someone's going through and how it manifests. Well, and again, like 
it's it's funny that you brought up suicide. Like statistically, like the 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 devices, the technologies are increasing senses of loneliness and oh, yeah. and and can link to suicidal tendencies. So that's also a real aspect of it. Like that's that's fear based. Like oh, I'm going to throw out people commit suicide because what they see no, yeah, on social. It's like but a, it's a various form of seasonal affective disorder. Yeah. So socials. I think the big thing that I'm trying to communicate is something that I already said, which is follow you at the Kenny Kenny. <laughs> no. Um, rather um, send a pigeon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's the thing is that like here I am awkwardly at the likely end of or close to the end of our conversation and you do the polite thing and go, where can people reach in? Frankly, I prefer no. people to like, if, if they, if they're compelled, they can email me and that's a very easy Kenny at Oak Park LA. And that's a, that's a, a much easier sort of human space. Yes, I do no, hold an Instagram account, but for sure that is a, that is a, I'm so antagonistic. Right that now. is a call to action. <laughs> but my, what I was actually going to say, instead of telling people where to follow you is ask you for advice. What do you think those people should do? Like, do you think like in a moment of wanting to do a scroll, do you think they should put the phone down and mm. be in the moment or reach out and actually talk to somebody? Maybe go for a walk? No, no I, mean, just- I, 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 don't, I don't have advice. I'm not an expert there I, other than I'm a behavioral expert in many ways. And I know that if, you know, it's drawing too much attention from the things that, you know, would qualify for you to put your attention in. That's something to consider. Um, and, you know, people are routinely splitting time between loved ones, between work, between areas that could really be supported by their focus. Um, I just, I, I, I want to be, you know, of the sect that's kind of carving out maybe look at some education, look at Tristan, look at some of the work that he's doing, look up his Ted talk, look up one of his articles, look at his website. Um, there's a, there's a culture of design ethicists that are confronting this in very helpful ways. And they understand that it's not, that it's a very complex conversation. So it's not a heuristic. It's yeah. not trying to like villainize it. It's just like, look, there is a consequence to it. And we need to recognize that it's a disproportionate relationship. It's so asymmetrical who has power in this relationship. It, it is. Yep. The, 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 the manifestations of how they're getting imprints and what do we use it for marketing. And, and I'm concerned about this, vast enormity of information being just thrown onto people. The good thing about a podcast is you can take it a little bit more at will. <laughs> yep. I will say this. How about this as a little challenge? And cause I, I find myself throwing little challenges out here on this podcast. And that is at some point on this day that you're listening to the podcast, when you're starting to feel the, the addiction kick in, because that's what it is. I have it mm-hmm. too. When you feel the need and the, that mi- you're missing the scroll, you're fiending. Put your phone down, and wherever you are, just look up 
that's some miracle near you. Yeah. For me, the thing that I've been doing now is, and this is private, but I'll throw it out there anyways, is like I'll look at a tree like blowing in the breeze attached to a tree and just be in awe of it. I think it's absolutely beautiful and amazing. Yeah. And just start, so that's the challenge. Do something like that for like 10 seconds. And I, I can almost guarantee that that little, that, that needy feeling will be gone. Yeah. Just take 10 seconds. Yeah. I routinely, like if there's, if there's an urge, like I'll switch to breath or just switch to the kids or, you know, whatever. I mean, that's, that's because now the consciousness is so deep at this point and, um, and it pains me and I, and I, I'm even more aware of how it feels. And the more distance that I get from it, the more I kind of go, wow, I, I, I just, I, it wasn't me being, the technophobe that I've historically been, it's like me actually feeling bad energetic. Like yep. I just don't feel well. Um, to tie back into, to the, the previous part of this podcast and, and to wrap it up. Um, and I don't, I don't necessarily mean this to be too big of a question It's more of a genuine, like actual genuinely con- concerned, but how are you now? Uh, in general, like I, I do feel like a lot of the criticalness has passed, so I'm I'm starting to feel much more restored. I'm still not getting a ton of rest, uh, and what's catching up to me now is that there's a sense that I I got to pay the tax, man, for the emotions that I didn't get to deal with or didn't choose to deal with, and there's a combination. Some of them I had to compartmentalize in service of the things that I felt needed to get done. Yeah. And those short term, short term answers. Yeah. And now I recognize that I, I, I'm, there's no exemption from any of those things and that some work needs to be done. Um, so look, what's been routine is I, I am very thankfully habituated no matter how busy I have a good physical practice and have like, don't really, allow the burdens of work a family whatever like it's you know I, I generally stay consistent and generally pretty close to very fit um and broadly capable which is compelling to me in the place that i am right now additionally i write in some form every single day um third breath work of some variation been doing for years and those things are deeply habituated um, and they were anchors in particular, the breath to help as a series of tools to get me through like those things. And now as I do, you know, techniques like two stage pranayama, you know, I'm really starting to excavate some, some tough stuff that was underneath a mat for a minute. And I'm really, really trying to address that. Um, you know, I have coaches, um, do therapy. I mean, there's, there's a lot, there's, there's a lot that, um, I value and, 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 and have for years, like going through this, like these, these, I got a set of tools, a set of people, but I also am equipped with enough patience to recognize, Hey, this is the working through this thing is going to come and fits and I'm not going to probably ever be done. Like I'm also a lot more comfortable with that. 
Um, I'm able to pay attention to um, my wife and my children a lot better than I have. Um, and you know that there, I, there's a lot of work that continues uh, to be done there. Um, additionally, you know, to answer the question, like there's a deep sense of a, a deeper sense of comfort with, Hey, there's some, there's some gnarly scars here. And by the way, I don't have to assume that I have to get back on track because getting back on tra- track is a supposition that the track that I was on was the one that's going to guide me now. And that's a false, that's a false idea. And so, you know, this next evolution of myself is one that's much more capable of understanding the, the, the sheer volatile nature of life and the, the complexity and just how damn ambiguous it is. Like, again, it comes back to VUCA, but like, you know, and the brutality of it. Like, I, I got schooled in brutality. And I'm much more comfortable talking to some high-level, hard-charging CEO or some somebody that just you know, return for their, you know, from their fifth deployment and talk to them in a more meaningful, helpful way because I've fallen off my bike really hard. And as a human, they respect and understand that. Yep. So it's one thing to theorize about like this is leadership and this is default decision making. It's another thing to be like, yeah, man, I'm fucked up. And so are you. And you're also a badass. And this whole thing is very black and white. No, it's not. It's gray. Right. It's gray. Now that's where the, that's where this thing is going to live. And those are the people that I affect. Yep. The people that I work with are, they're world crushers. And so all this is like, it helps me be a great coach to them. Well, that is something that I really enjoy seeing in you. Also, I understand, you know, I'm able to have some empathy, not a full understanding of the depth of the, the pain that you've gone through. Yeah, likewise. Um, you know, I just hope I hope that you get to a certain point where you can, and maybe you're there now, where you're just completely in the moment and happy and able to be okay with everything with your kids, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I find those moments a lot. Good. Yeah, yeah, I find those moments a lot. I also find moments where I'm just like I'm gonna shoot them and myself right now. Yeah. Well, that's okay. So then you, <laughs> you know, so then you're just like, doing normal parenting. To, totally. It's just that's just normal parenting. And they also are a little lesson on humor, and they're probably our best teachers. Oh, that's great. And, and just like, uh, you, you might not realize it, but you were probably, uh, you know, an awesome teacher to your mom. Yeah. Because hmm. that's what I bet if you ask every parent, they say that their kids oh, yeah. teach them. Oh yeah, 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 for sure. You know, and so. Um, do you have any like future professional goals that you haven't attained yet? Oh, sure. Sure. 
but I'm also the other thing is is that you know I watch. See, the interesting thing about like the network that I'm in is because I principally work with people like very just they're I, for whatever reason I've I've very much lucked out and I get to work with people that are just tremendously influential, tremendously. Um, and I get to see firsthand so often the consequence of that. I was about to ask, are they happy? Well, that's, that's the interesting thing. Like it's a combination of misery, happy. Some of them are very purposeful. Others are just completely lost. Hmm. And so that's the thing. But I do see that ambition for ambition's sake or to make bold claims and to go do it just because the whatever discomfort that it could create or, you know, I also kind of see a lot of bravado in those sort of notions. I'm going to go get uncomfortable now and conquer the world. I'm going to change the world. It's like, uh, okay. Yep. And understand, like we talked about before there, there will be sacrifice if that's the path. And there will be people in that wake. There will be other things. Like you just got to understand that that's, that's part of the thing. Sure is. And so it, it doesn't come without that. And to, 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 to think that, it will is well underexperienced because I, at least from what I've seen, I haven't seen a, like a, somebody who's really established not go through some major fall or multiple falls, their capacity, their grit, their capability of getting up their their like, you know, intellectual or psycho-emotional wizardry is so profound that they can continue, but they're, they're still subject to like massive, massive falls it's interesting to be because I'm in a position where I'm alongside them privately to be one of probably three guides that they really trust in their life. And it's not even so much a guide. It's just like yeah. I'm usually there to listen and to move a little bit. And then, you know, hey, Kenny, what do you think about, you know, I mean, <laughs> there's been some public, major public deals that i've known and i'll, and I'll listen to the you know, i'll be driving somewhere and listen to like sports talk and then a couple of years ago there's a major thing in the sports world that was that happened and i knew that the purchase of this giant organization was happening and i listened to really well-informed people argue over things that weren't true and speculate over untruths for weeks and i was like wow i know this I'm part of something that equals like I, I'm, I'm on the inside track of something that is going to equal $4 billion and probably one of 10 people that actually knows about it. And it's like, I was in a position to just sort of listen privately, respectfully. Well, you, ha you, you have the broad shoulders to bear that. Yeah. Well, I don't know about that. I, I seem to, I feel like sometimes it's a lot of luck that kind of like put me in the position in, in, in many ways. Yeah. You but know? I'm just saying in general, you're bearing your own stuff and you're bearing a lot other people's stuff. It's a lot. Mm. It's a lot. And mm. I know you have the awareness to recognize that. Yeah. And it's a calling and it's something you've, you started in your parents and your family gave you the ability to do that at a young age. Mm, maybe. Um, before we wrap this up, uh, I just want to give one quick little shout out before I forget. Yep. And that is the 
last episode I recorded was, was with our friend and one of your roots, Andy Petronic. Yeah, he came AP, on. Yeah. But uh, in that discussion, we talked about, I haven't done the whole life challenge before. Uh-huh. I'm going to do it starting September 29th. Yep, yep. And we started the, the CCUA team. Cool. So for the listeners, it starts September 29th. You can join the team prior to that. You can also join, I think, within 10 days of the start date. So if you're interested in joining the team and, and trying to improve ourselves for the better, to push a little bit, take control of some stuff, and, and improve on the seven daily habits, mm-hmm. please join our team. Any of the, the proceeds that are, are uh, built up from that, we're going to use it. We'll probably talk as a team and use it to somebody, um, somebody in need that's shown a little bit of resilience and grit. So I don't know exactly what that's what that looks like yet, but I'm certainly not interested in keeping a penny of it. It's going to go back to someone who needs it more than me. So the link for that is on the Instagram. I'll I'll also put uh, a link for it on the show notes for this at the CCUA.com. Make sure to go to (laughs) OakParkLA.com. Or the body of knowledge. Yes. Yeah. The Um, body of knowledge. Which is, is our, which is a podcast I do with Dr. Andy Galpin and a PhD of behavioral statistics, Josh Embry. And we've got season one and two out. We're about to start recording season three in the second week of October. By the way, I was almost a part of that. Almost? Almost. Almost. And I'm glad everything worked out the way it did. Just saying. Yeah. You know, me too. Because... Um, Not sure that would have been right for everybody. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. Either way, you're happy with it. You're yeah. happy with the body of knowledge. I'm happy with oh, very the, much with this fun little project here. Uh, if you also don't mind, I know iTunes is a thing, and people are supposed to go in there and rate. I'm told there's a reason for it all, and and for leaving good reviews. Uh, so in light of that, if you go on there within these next couple next week or so, I'm gonna select one of the reviews. I was gonna. Re- read some of them on here but it feels kind of weird to read your own reviews mm. i don't know yeah but i'm gonna i'm gonna go through that i'm gonna select somebody and then i'm gonna send you one of the ccua posters so if you're curious what they look like go to the ccua.com and click on the, the store tab or the merch tab or one of those do it do yeah. it and um to circle back uh i really feel that like, especially when your when your time comes, that you're gonna have like mountains of marbles underneath your hands. Yeah. Wow. I know I certainly will have one yeah. nice and shiny if I'm still around. And if not, I'll leave it for you. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good, man. Thank you. Um, and mm. I love you. I'm I'm proud of you. I'm very appreciative that that I get to call you my friend. Likewise, brother. And remember, folks, health is wealth, vulnerability is strength, and strength is a choice. So be unconquerable. Thank you for listening. Bye.